Hi there. Welcome to the Jewelry Navigator podcast, an on-the-go source of original and unique jewelry with stories of the designers who create it. My name is Brenna Pakes. I'm a graduate gemologist with a degree in geology. I've worked in the retail sector for over 15 years. After completing my graduate gemology diploma and working in the industry for a little while, I took an intermittent career break and worked for a major airline. That's why I combine the theme of aviation and the concept of navigating shoppers to choices of unique jewelry, as well as understanding gem selection and jewelry construction, as well as metal choices. I do a coordinating blog post for every podcast showing photos of the jewelry that we're talking about, as well as links to the jewelers and more information about them. So I hope you enjoy the episodes and feel free to subscribe for your Jewelry Navigator Passport, a way to stay up to date with the current episodes and upcoming features. Thanks so much for joining us and enjoy the episode. Uh, one of my favorite stories happened in May. Uh, we were in Malawi and we were doing a bush training. So we were at a rhodolite garnet mine. And um, under a tree, yes, under a tree, under the hot Malawi sun, uh, sweating because you know it was it was hot to us, but it was cold to them. Um, so uh, yeah, so they're farmers. It's ninety percent of the country is agricultural, so they're corn farmers, and uh, it's a small village. And so I was, we were sitting down, and I thought, oh my, what am I going to tell these people? Like, I they don't need to know how to separate rhodolite garnet from red zircon, that's not helpful to them. They're just miners. So I asked them, what would you like to know about gemstones? And so this gentleman raised his hand and he said, is it true and how is it possible that gemstones form in the sky? That was Rachel Derry with her father, Roger, telling a little story, and you'll have to stay tuned to listen to the rest of the story. They've had 35 trips to Africa. Well, at least Roger has. They're extremely influential in the changes that are happening within the gem trade industry. Whether you love jewelry and gems as much as some of us do, you might be curious as to who finds these gemstones, the rough minerals and the gems that turn into the jewelry that we end up wearing. Knowing who finds the gem crystals and exactly where to look is a little bit harder to trace and has been more difficult to track down until now or unless you make that your mission. Today I'm so excited and honored to be sharing my visit with Roger and Rachel Derry. Their gem story goes so much deeper than the depths from which the gems they feature are discovered. The Derry family, Roger, his wife Ginger, and their daughter Rachel launched Gem Legacy last fall. It's a 501c3 nonprofit company. In Tucson next month, Roger, Ginger, and Rachel will be celebrating the launch of Gem Legacy, along with their board of directors, Christina Cloverfield of Fields Jewelers, Monica Stevenson of iDazzle and Anza Gems, and Ben Smithy from the Smithy Group, who will be assisting in the operations of Gem Legacy. Their mission is to make the lives of the miners, families, and communities that are supported through Gem Legacy better and more enriched through their treasured resources by means of education and guided support by Gem Legacy. With the demands of more transparent commerce interactions, Roger Derry and his family are building a legacy of trust that gives back through a benevolent cycle for the gem and mineral industry from the ground up, something that's been way overdue. Thank you so much for joining me, and I really am so excited to be sharing their story. They have real-life stories, feet on the ground, in the mines, finding gemstones, stories that I think you're really going to enjoy. They're just delightful to visit with, and I'm so excited to be sharing this with you. Please join me in watching their development and their growth on Instagram. You can find them at the gem legacy you can also find gemstones and other information on gem legacy on roger dairy that's at roger dairy on instagram and rogerdairy.com i'm so excited to share their story and 
the beginning of what Rachel was just telling is just one of the many stories of the gemstones that they find and the people that they interact with and the lives that they've enriched by starting Gem Legacy. Thanks so much for joining me and enjoy the episode. Let's start at the beginning, how this all started. And Roger, I'd love to hear your background and how you got started in gemology and, um, you know, lapidary. Well, uh, initially I was, after high school, I went to a trade school to become a pipe fitter and welder. And I worked at that for 10 years. And uh, as I looked around at people that were much older than myself, I could see that you know, you'd see guys walk around that are missing a finger, walking with a limp, or had to have their shoulders rebuilt so they could keep working. And I thought that I didn't want to be that guy. So I started looking at other avenues, and we kind of fell into uh, fell into jewelry. So uh, my focus primarily from the beginning was gemstones, which is my personal passion. Mm-hmm. So that would have been from 81 through uh, probably 2001. So I was what would be considered a loose-colored stone dealer. I would buy goods from Bangkok or Hong Kong or Jaipur and uh, import them to the United States, and I would go around the United States selling stones to retail jewelers. Okay. And uh, probably about 10 years in, I realized that uh, I had a, a desire for better cut goods than what I was finding overseas, so I, w- I employed... Uh, two local guys that were quite a bit older than me. They retired from their regular jobs, but they did a lot of lapidary work and uh, recutting of gems. And so they did that uh, together jointly um, up until about 2000. Uh, They both passed away about five months apart. And uh, then I was in a situation where I needed to find a way to execute the cutting of the stone. So I hired a guy in North Carolina to teach me. So I spent uh, the summer of 2001 with him and Mm -hmm. uh, Came back to Michigan with a, a skill set that was fun and interesting and, and worth it. So I basically recut my complete inventory in the next year and a half. And then I was on a quest to buy rough because I'd already burned through all of the things I had that were worth recutting. So that's how the, the gem cutting part of it started. Okay. As far as, as, far as the sourcing part, I, um, I was drawn into a situation in Namibia in 1999. Uh, They were looking to increase employment in the country. They'd been through a 23-year war with South Africa, and there was a lot of unemployment, like in the 40% range, because people were operating as soldiers and didn't know what to go back to. Mm. Uh, Because many of them, at at age 16, they went right into the military, and, you know, if they were... uh, in the military for 15 years, they didn't have another job to go back to. So uh, a friend of mine convinced me I would be helpful to help the country kind of rebuild that sector. So they had gemstone rough and they have diamonds, but they didn't have gem cutters. So I went there as a marketing specialist, but within the first couple of weeks, it was clear I was going to help them actually build two gem cutting schools. And that's what we did over the next two years. So from then until uh, summer of 2001, I was basically assisting the country to build up their the workforce. What kind of gemstones are sourced in Namibia? In addition to diamond, the main focus at that time was either mandarin garnet, which came from the northwest sector, or they're interested in tourmaline, mostly green, some kind of a minty green. Today they call it lagoon tourmaline. You might have seen that name. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have some pinks, and they have aquamarine and red garnet. That's, that's the basis of, their, uh, of what they have. Okay. So from 2001 forward, I was focusing on just custom cutting gems uh, for my clients, for the stores we work with. And then from about 2005 forward, I started looking at how to acquire uh, better quality rough or just rough in general so I could then be productive. And then beginning in 2008, I started traveling overseas to acquire the rough myself. And that would have been uh, first trip was to Madagascar, which is quite a trip, 17 days of not knowing what I was doing on the ground there. So it was kind of an experience. So Madagascar became the beginning from then, uh, that point forward. And the rough there was spinel, sapphire, a lot of garnet, um, some emerald, tourmaline, morganite, uh, aquamarine, quite a range of goods in Madagascar. It's more of a 
cornucopia. It's kind of like Brazil. They have such a wide range of minerals available to them. Right. Uh, but in getting the goods out of the country, they really haven't formulated a plan on how to handle the export. So I ended up leaving my goods there for 14 months. So that wasn't a great idea to go back. So basically, a friend of mine was able to bring the goods back for me. I then transitioned over to East Africa, where uh, handling exports was easier on me and easier on them. Mm-hmm. And that's we uh, we really ramped up starting from uh, January 2009. Okay. So then when did Gem Legacy start? Um, I'll, I'll come in on this part, I guess. Uh, so my parents have been um, doing uh, visiting East Africa um, for many, many years, of course. My dad's been there 35 times, and on each trip they're always uh, – quick to pull out their wallet and give wherever it was needed. Uh, They always take uh, food whenever they visit a gemstone mine. Uh, They've been supporting the same primary school and orphanage for almost a decade, and uh, the faceting school in Arusha, again, almost a decade. And, of course, that's kind of a favorite of my dad's because he's a faster himself, so he's excited to see that passion grow around the world. so uh, last year, the team of people who traveled with my parents saw that they were always taking out their wallets and handing out money, and they felt that they should have a ready and available fund uh, for whatever needs that they see arise when they're on the ground so that their hands wouldn't be tied by not having enough to give or to answer whatever need was um, being asked for. So uh Yeah, they inspired the idea, and uh, we got it formalized this year with the government. So we're an official 501c3 nonprofit. Um, So that happened this summer, and we launched this fall of 2018. Um, And it's really doing what they've been doing uh, for a decade, uh, but we believe that we can make a lot more impact if we're doing it together. So if we call others to do uh, this work with us, then we're going to be able to reach a lot more people. Mm-hmm. And hopefully uh, really make sure that every gemstone that's mined in East Africa uh, leaves the miner better than they were before. That's... So when you go to Africa, tell me, tell me what happens from the time you land to when you get to the mines and to the communities that you're working with. Well, most of my trips are centered around uh, purchasing rough, visiting mines, and seeing where we can contribute back. Mm -hmm. And so uh, from the time we land, we try to have uh, what I call an easy day for the first day in arrival because many of the people that have traveled with me, it's their first time uh, traveling to Africa and sometimes first time traveling out of the country. Uh, So we move forward to visiting three or four different mines, we visit as many as nine mines on one trip, but usually it's three to four trip uh, mines. And then we have uh, time set aside to buy cut stones and buy some rough, and then we typically get end up on a safari somewhere or some kind of a um, in-the-bush kind of tour, and then we pack up our goods and get us out of there and back home to the United States. So the goal, of really, of our time in Africa is for it to be a foundation for the gemstones. So... Um, every single gemstone now that we share um, or that is adopted out of uh, Roger's collection comes um, in a way that uh, we can ensure that its uh, path along the supply chain was transparent and not just responsible, ethical, or green, but really that we're holistically uh, lifting up each person along the supply chain. So, mm-hmm. of course, this isn't possible for every gemstone, um, but for we focus on East African gemstones. So for all of those, uh, it means that we can ensure that the the family, and not just the miner, was holistically impacted mind, body, soul by um, by the the mining in their in their family and in their community. And I would say we've seen this happen over and over and over again, where mining in a community has totally transformed their economy, but also just their family relationships, their bond as a, as a community, and the future, future of their next generation. Hmm, that's wonderful. So if people want to purchase gems that are sourced there and faceted, how do they go about finding out where they are? The gems are all available on our website, which is rogerdairy.com. 
Uh, so the collection is always live. We're updating our inventory all the time. Um, we travel around a lot so that we can share the collection in person with clients. Uh, my dad has always been really passionate about uh, being able to look the final consumer in the eye and say, I met the people who were working the mine where this came from. Uh, so the, tra- the collection is usually traveling, but it's always available online. And uh, with each gemstone, you can see uh, the country that it comes from and a map of that. And um, if it's one of the countries that we travel to frequently, you can see some pictures from our trips. That is so cool. So when Rachel uh, speaks about the gems being available online, uh, and you may not already know this, but our our focus really is working through retail jewelers. So if a consumer was to contact us, we would find a local jeweler that they could work through, and then we would send the gem to the store that's closest to them that hopefully we have a relationship with, and then they get to see it in person before they make a commitment. Right. Oh, that's great. I love how you're working with the jewelry stores here to, you know, bring that full circle. And that just makes my heart feel so happy to know that you can look at a stone and know who who found it and where it all started. That's just such a beautiful story. I, I agreed. And, uh, you know, so often, and especially I think in America, we have that immediate gratification. It's so easy for us to just pick up something off the rack or take it out of a case. And um, it's just a tangible item and it's really sparkly and beautiful and makes us feel pretty. But uh, when we look at gemstones, they really are more than just a rock or a mineral. Um, There's people's lives who've been impacted by it. And um, even more than a life, there's multiple families who are fed, sending their kids to school and dreaming much bigger dreams than they were before gemstones were a part of their life. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a story of the human lives who were impacted by that gemstone that goes into each one. Right. And, uh, right. Brent, I want to just divert for just a moment here. Uh, I don't mean divert like in a bad way, divert in a great way. So <laughs> many of the miners and dealers that we work with in East Africa uh, quite often we find they've been digging for things and don't actually know what they're finding. So we make a point at every opportunity that we can to actually teach them about what they are doing or teach them about the individual minerals or how to separate one type of garnet from another. So sometimes we bring them tools to use, uh, you know, gemological tools. Sometimes they're a simplified tool that can be handled locally uh, in their region. But our philosophy is that we want to leave them in a better condition when we found them. And part of that means educating them on what they're doing because sometimes they don't actually know. And so I just couldn't walk away from it and not do something. So that's that's part of who we are as well. Wow, that's that makes it you know all the more special. I had no idea that they wouldn't understand what they were finding. That um, that makes even a bigger impact. For sure. Yeah, there was a gentleman um, when we were in Malawi uh, last year. We had met with. Uh, well, we'd done a training for the Ministry of Mines uh, over two different days, and we met with roughly 175, I mean, I had the number correct, but it's in that ballpark, of miners and dealers on, on what they were handling and, and how they were handling it. So we were kind of finished with that part of the program, and we set about to do some, some purchasing before we left the country. And this gentleman came to us from a fairly small village, and it turns out he ended up being the chief of this village. I didn't know that early on. But so he came and talked to us, and he was representing the gem rough they had found locally, mostly on farms. Mm-hmm. So he had, and it was rhodolite garnet. So he's showing us the rough, and it wasn't very attractive. And so, uh, I mean, it had nice color, but it was very included. But he didn't understand that part, and we were probably not having a great opportunity trying to communicate that. So I ended up giving him my my uh, my headset, my magnifier, and let him look at the inside of the gem through magnification. And all of a sudden, like, like there was this light bulb went on in his head, like, oh, my gosh. Well, no wonder you don't want to buy that. Because up until that point, he did not know to know. Mm-hmm. That's just one of those, one of dozens of moments in time where we had an impact on one person who now is going to impact his village, recognizing that they need to know more about what they handle. Right, right. That's amazing. I'm floored to to know that, um, I guess you just 
for from someone who doesn't know, I guess they just I just assumed that they they would know what they have. But um, wow, that's that's just remarkable. So sometimes they do know. Um, I mean, if it's a plain red garnet and they're you know, it, it can be fairly intuitive because they know that that's commonly found in their country. Um, but uh, if they're, if it's a less common mineral, like when we were in Malawi, it took us a while to figure out that we kept seeing appetite. And we had five gemologists together on this trip, and there it took us still a couple of days to figure it out because we didn't have our tools with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we just had that problem recently as well with zircon, where they assumed that it was another gemstone, and it was actually zircon. So when there's things that come in similar colors, um, it's hard for them to separate that. And there really aren't gemologists in the country. There might be one in the capital, but there aren't really gemologists in the country for them to take it to. So they're really going off of a guess. Um, so our goal is to make sure that they know what they have, they know what grade it is, they know how to value it uh, so that they know how to sell it and so that they're not taken advantage of because mm-hmm. um, especially in Malawi, which is a very young country in the gem industry, we see that happen very frequently. Um, and I think an even larger problem is that uh, miners, even if they know what they have, they're not sure where to continue working. So uh, one of my favorite stories happened in May. Uh, we were in Malawi, and we were doing a bush training. So we were at a rhodolite garnet mine. and um, Under a tree. Yes, under a tree, under the hot <laughs> Malawi sun, uh, sweating because, you know, it was it was hot to us, but it was cold to them. Um, so, uh, yeah, so they're farmers. It's 90% of the country is agricultural. So they're corn farmers and uh, it's a small village. And so I was, we were sitting down and I thought, oh, my, what am I going to tell these people? Like, I, they don't need to know how to separate rhodolite garnet from red zircon. That's not helpful to them. They're just miners. So I asked them, what would you like to know about gemstones? And so this gentleman raised his hand and he said, is it true and how is it possible that gemstones form in the sky? So Mm. our team kind of looked at each other and then I think all at the same moment the light bulb went off that um, he explained to us that um, they find gems in between their cornrows every time it rains. So, of course, logically then we come to the conclusion uh, the gems, of course, are in the mountains and with the erosion, with the rain, they move down into the valley where they're farming, and so they're finding them after each rainstorm in between their, their cornrows. Um, so they came to the conclusion that gems are formed in the sky, and they didn't even know um, how gems form and therefore um, how to continue finding them. So they were doing some hard rock mining that was really giving them slivers of rhodolite garnet, and we're looking at this riverbed in the bottom of this valley that's probably just full of rhodolite garnet waiting that's been moved by erosion over the centuries to the lowest point in the valley there. But they didn't know to look there because they didn't know that's how it worked. So, um, yeah, they were really excited by the time we left because they understood the heat and pressure underground that formed gems and that this wasn't something that falls from the sky randomly. This happened at the beginning of the, of the earth forming, that this is something that's, that's been there for centuries and it's a precious resource of their country and of their village, and that this is their gift to share with the world. Um, and secondly, they were excited because they knew where to keep mining. Oh, that's a great story. Yeah, that would make sense for somebody who doesn't understand it, but to um, reveal that whole truth about their their precious resources is just invaluable. It was really fun to see the looks on their faces as we explained <laughs> it. Oh, that's great. Um so what, it, what, while you were explaining to me when you find the rough, I'm used to testing gemstones on a refractometer, you know, with flat surfaces. When yep. you find a piece of rough and you're not sure what it is, how do you test it to know what it is? <laughs> uh, you use a little library that forms in your brain. Uh, <laughs> okay. from all of the other pieces of gem rough that you've found. Uh, or looked at, and you compare it to that. It's really, um, you use your, I learned from my dad in the field, you use your eyes and your hands first. Uh-huh. So color, um, the outside texture, was it hard rock mining or alluvial mining? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it, if you're using your hands, you're going to feel the heft. Is it, is it light? 
Mm-hmm. Is it heavy? Um, and usually the heaviness plus the color, uh, combining those two indicators together, takes us to our conclusion. Um, mm-hmm. uh, if we need something more than that, um, we have sort of a in-the-field um, polariscope to determine if it's singly refractive or doubly refractive. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's basically like uh, two pieces of sunglasses, um, two sunglass lenses put, put together. Uh, it works just like a gemological polariscope, just it's a in-the-field kind of transportable one. Um, and we do bring a dichroscope and spectroscope along, but um, honestly, it's kind of rare that we need it. There's enough crystal structure, color, and heft to tell us um, to tell us what it is. Okay. Oh, that's so cool. And it isn't like we haven't made a mistake or two along the way because when you're looking at thousands of pieces of rough, to get it perfect and be correct on every one, it just isn't going to happen. You're going to have some errors along the way. Oh, sure. Right. Yeah, unless you had your little portable lab with you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Um, the fascinating part about looking at rough is, um, you know, it's just a rock to most of us. And so um, it's, it takes an artist and, and sort of an art and science brain put together, which um, is a miracle in itself, but occurred in my dad. And so we're thankful for it because he can look at a piece of rough and um, see immediately uh, what shape he's going to cut it into, what faceting style he believes is going to bring out the most beauty. And uh, usually he can tell us what weight it's going to end up. And my mom and I have learned the hard way not to place bets against him on that because he always wins. <laughs> Well, it's up for today. <laughs> you, you mentioned Malawi, and then where are some of the other places where the mines are that you work with? Oh, our primary focus uh, has been uh, along the Mozambique Belt. So we're talking about Malawi, uh, Tanzania, Kenya, and there's other countries too. But we try to focus on the countries that appreciate having foreign uh, travelers come in. So. You know, uh, I would say Mozambique is a little bit of a Wild West show at this point. It's probably a little bit too risky. Uh, Madagascar, even though they become more gem-friendly, it's still too hard to work there because they don't have um, they don't have a business plan in place for their gem industry. It isn't like like they have a lot of cattle and sheep and goats in Madagascar, so they already have like an integrated business model for how that's handled and the export of of the meat. And, and milk products, but it, when it comes to the gem trade in Madagascar, they are not sophisticated yet. They're they're probably 20 years behind Tanzania. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, the Tanzania, as far as colored gemstones, probably leads all of Africa in its infrastructure and ability to uh, get things moving in out of the country, even though they've recently passed some laws that kind of inhibit our activity, they're still the most advanced. And right behind them would be Kenya. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then probably after that, probably Namibia. Um, I mean, maybe the Congo, the DRC, uh, just a little risky for us to travel there. So we try to focus on the areas where it's safe and we have access to GEMRUF. Okay. That was one of my questions that I had emailed you. You know, what, what kind of preparation do you need to do so that you're safe? And, um, you know, thinking about the, the tragedy of um, the Bridges family and what happened with them and how things have changed, it's nice to know that there are countries that are, they are recognizing that these gem resources are so important and valuable to them and they're opening their doors to, like you said, to foreign travelers coming in to help. Now, uh, the situation with uh, Campbell Bridges was most unfortunate and uh, very short-sighted by a few Kenyans that uh, probably had it in for him. Um, but for the most part, our experience in East Africa, specifically Tanzania and Kenya, primarily that's where most of our travel has been, is that they have been very warm, very welcoming. They're excited for us to be there. They they are thrilled that we're taking the time to come to their country and spend money with them in one form or another. Mm-hmm. So there isn't a downside to that. So uh, on the Tanzanian side, I'd say um, it's probably perceived as being a bit safer than Kenya. Uh, only because there have been some um, attacks in the northern part of Kenya where they've involved uh, uh, extremists. But from Nairobi north, that's 
that's a whole other section of the country. All of our focus is in the southern part of Kenya, close to the Tanzanian border. And as far as I can tell from all the things I've read, and I'm constantly checking things online with various news organizations, there isn't any negative activity going on in the south where there's gem mining activity. So I feel pretty comfortable. I mean, if someone was to drop me off in the, in the town of Voy, which is kind of the central point to all the mining activity, and if I was to stay there by myself for two weeks, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be uncomfortable at all. Mm-hmm. It kind of sounds like the Wild West because it's so foreign to us if we haven't been there, but um, it really is, it's, um, I, I want to use the word civilized. It's still very different culture, but um, it's still very civilized, and we've just chosen to focus on countries that are gem-rich but are ready to um, be a bit more organized and formalized with their um, industry and um, with miners and dealers who we feel like we can partner with for a very long period of time. So when we're going to start working with a mine, um, it's on the understanding that this isn't a one-and-done deal. We're going to come back and visit again and again. Um, we want to support you during the years where you're finding a lot of Savorite garnet, and we want to support you during the years where you're not finding any Savorite garnet because, unfortunately, there's often more years where they're not finding anything than when they're finding lots um, because we're not working with the well-funded, um, uh, externally funded mines who have um, access to whatever they need. We're working with those kind of fledgling baby artisanal mines that are just getting started or have have been moving, but they're still moving at a, a slow rate. They don't have a lot of assistance. So um, we kind of want to help the lowest common denominator and ensure that we're leaving them better than they were before uh, and working with them for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. It, it's possible that some of the mines that we visit maybe weren't even operating the last time we were there. So many of the mining locations may only operate for three months, six months, maybe a year. They exhaust what they find in their specific location, and then they move on to another location. In addition, like one of the mines that we went back to visit this past year, uh, at the bottom of the mine they had located some water. So a little bit of water was entering into the, in the mining area. And because it was a uh, drought season, the elephants were searching for water. They literally demolished the mine to get to the water. You know, there's nothing you can do about that. So they uh, they picked up and they moved on a couple kilometers away and basically started over again. What is, Jimmy, your favorite um, gems that you get excited about when you find in the field? Well, it, because we're talking East Africa here, you're looking at between 15 and 20 different mineral types or groups of uh, gems in a mineral type. So mm-hmm. there's a strong focus on, on the garnet family, uh, specifically green. So when we're finding significant pieces of green garnet, especially uh, savorite that are over a gram in size, or maybe over two grams in size, that's worth getting excited about because a one-gram well-shaped piece of savorite rough is going to probably cut about a carat and a quarter or a carat and a half stone. So if we're finding two-gram sizes, which is not a frequent circumstance, we know we're cutting two-and-a-half to three-carat size stones, which can lead to quite a tidy little sum, you know, for them and for us. But there's other minerals, too. I mean, uh, we see aquamarine. We see um, other barrels. Occasionally, we see things like idocraze and um, uh, rupine and oh, obviously, there's the red garnets there. It's all on the Mozambique belt, uh, but we like all the... Well, I take a personal interest in like all the all the weird stones as well, the things that are you and I would know as the bee chart. I think savorite is probably one of my favorite stones. And recently I did some research on the geology and the formation of the crystals and how um, through the metamorphic activity, unfortunately, the crystals fractured. So is it is it unusual to find a savorite crystal or are they all pretty much fractured in pieces? Well, I would say 99% of the time, uh, because of the metamorphic activity, you have crystals that have been maybe heated a second time by the earth, and so you end up having uh, fractured material. Uh, We seldom see intact crystals in Savorite. That would be Mm -hmm. an unusual circumstance, unless they're highly included and maybe they got, you know, 
pushed into an area where they were digging and they found a weird-looking crystal. They pulled it out, but it wasn't facetable or even cabochon quality, but would be interesting as a specimen. We do see those from time to time, but very few large intact crystals. Okay, interesting. So on this past trip that we came back from uh, two weeks ago, um, I got to, we went to uh, nine different mines, and I think that five or six were Savorite Garnet. Um, so um, I went to the bottom, I think, of five Savorite Garnet mines. Uh, so it was kind of a, a crash course in Savorite Garnet geology. Um, and nothing from the books, just from, from, re- from looking, and um, it was fascinating to kind of um, use my background and then hear what they're saying and kind of put them together because um, there were some gaps certainly in my knowledge, but then there were also some gaps in there. So it was interesting to kind of have the full view with that. Um, and uh, they get really excited. There will be kind of these um, flakes of of Savorite Garnet. It looks a bit like a half-baked cookie, so you can see that it, it should have been Savorite Garnet. Um, but it actually will will crumble between your fingers if you push it really hard. Um, so it might have really fabulous color, um, and it, you can see that it's partially crystallized, but it's not all the way there. So when they're reaching that point, they're really excited because they should be at, at the next point deeper or farther that they're going. They should, they're hoping that they're reaching the point where the heat um, reached a temperature where it actually um, crystallized. Oh, that's so cool. That must have been so much fun to see and go into. Yeah. Yes, it was fabulous. Uh, I think there was a day where I went in um, four mines, and, you know, once you're at the very end in the mine where they're currently working, you're covered in sweat because your body's trying to cre- create oxygen because there isn't oxygen that far down, and so you're, you're literally covered in perspiration. And then the dirt covers you, so you come out of the mine, and then it all dries on you. And then you repeat the process three times. So it was like four different layers of dirt. It was a really spectacular shower I took that evening. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want her to yeah. sit next to me. On, I didn't want her to sit next to me on the truck. <laughs> People might not know that uh, grassular garnet, so the lighter form of savorite, is an indicator mineral for tanzanite. So um, it's found in the Marilani Hills where tanzanite comes from. Uh, so tanzanite miners also get really excited when they find grassular garnet there. Uh, but to them, it's less of a precious gemstone and more of a sign that uh, the pot of gold is coming. Um, so uh, grassular garnet forms a little bit uh, closer to the surface, a little bit um, higher up in the crust than tanzanite. So um, it's interesting how sometimes the gemstone is the desired gemstone, and sometimes that same gem is just an indicator mineral to a different miner in a different area. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Okay, so... Speaking of tanzanite, everybody knows that there's a limited source, a limited resource of them. What what are you seeing in the field? Or is there still, um, I don't know, are there still some years that we can count on seeing new material? Well, I'm probably not an expert in this particular field to be able to answer this, but from all indicators that I see, having visited there a number of times and being one of my best friends in the industry there is a tanzanite miner. And what we're seeing is that they're now digging somewhere between uh, 2,000 and 2,500 feet, most of, the, most of the locations. Keeping in mind, you know, 50 years ago, they were mining at 5 or 10 feet. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So and there's roughly about 400 artisanal mines in the Marilani uh, mining area in the sector. And... This is in addition to the major operation known as Tanzanite One that used to employ hundreds and hundreds of people. So most of these operations are between two and maybe ten people. That makes up 90% of them. And and what they have going on is, you know, you have two guys going down to the bottom, two guys just uh, shoveling dirt down there. Stuff is pulled up by a pulley system, usually run with some kind of a hydraulic motor or uh, compressor of some kind. And then they're going through and sorting and sifting through all this material to find anything as an indicator or any crystals that are worth keeping. So this this is very, I don't I want to say serious work. It isn't like they don't have some fun along the way, but we try to take them as serious as they're taking their work. So for somebody to be working at a site like this, you know, basically it's manual labor, uh, even with a little help of some machinery, 
to be doing this for three, four, five months until they find a pocket, it just it's humbling to know that they're going to trust me with their crystals and find a new home for them. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like it sounds like very hard work to us, and it is. I don't want to minimize that, but they truly love the work that they're doing. Um, certainly, that might be a generalization, just like here. Not everybody is loving the job that they're doing, but. Um, they're choosing to do that, and they love it. So um, they're passionate about it. They're excited. When we go visit a mine, they're, they will talk for an hour about what they've been finding, how they've been doing, all the indicator minerals, uh, when they think they're going to get it. It's like they have the thrill of the hunt, and mm-hmm. it is in their blood, and they are bound and determined to find that gemstone if it's the last thing they do. Um, and it really creates a bond between the miners. Um, so it's, it's challenging for us to see, but they truly love what they're doing. And, um, uh, when we go to a mine that is feeling like they're really close to something or they've just found something, it's like the adrenaline is, you can smell it. I mean, these guys are, I say guys, because many of the mines we're going to are, are mostly men, uh, working them, but, um, they're excited. I mean, they're just, um, it's palpable. Yeah, I would say they're they're geeked. They're they're excited about what they're doing. <laughs> That's so special that you get to share something so. Um, it, it, it's I don't even know how to put words into it, but it it's so nice that you get to share that excitement with them. Something so precious, and like you said, Roger, that they 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 trust you with the gems and the material that they're finding and they're willing to share that enthusiasm and excitement with you. Yeah, one of the things I should mention, I, I know we've talked about mostly the men miners, uh, male miners. There is actually quite a movement amongst uh, women to be involved in the mining trade as well. There's a group in Tanzania called Tawoma, the Tanzania Women's Mining Association. There's also a small women's mining association in Malawi. And uh, more recently, there's a group in Kenya, in southern Kenya. Uh, they call themselves the Precious Women in Mining. Hmm. And so we recognize they, I don't want to use the term handicap, but uh, for lack of a better, better term here, you know, because they're raising a family. And they're keeping a household, and you know they may or may not be married. Some of the ladies with the precious wound of mining are actually widowed. So here they are; uh, they're working a mine four to six hours a day, plus trying to keep their kids in school and do all that that entails. So part of uh, one of our most recent initiatives is to look for ways that we can support them because they have to work so much harder than their male counterparts, and so that's kind of kind of one of the things we aspire to. Wow, that's great, Roger. Um, I'll have to look. Do you have you posted anything about that on your on Instagram? Um, we've posted a few things about the precious woman in mining um, on both the Roger Dairy and Gem Legacy Instagram. Um, but we'll be launching more about the precious woman in mining. Um, we've decided it's going to be the first uh, mine that Gem Legacy is going to work with on a long term basis. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, this is actually the, the lady who uh, heads it up, Esther. Um, she is a widow of um, my dad's very good friend who died two and a half years ago. Uh, he was kind of our tour guide, safari guide, mentor, gem broker. He was also a miner, mine owner. Um, and so uh, his wife has kind of taken on the legacy of gemstones for herself and has um, partnered with several other women to start this precious woman in mining. And so they have a fabric garnet mine in Southern Kenya. Um, so we went in June and we went, um, again on this last trip in November, uh, so that we could see their progress. They had just started in January. Um, and so, uh, the distance that they did from January to June, uh, is they doubled that in, uh, June to November. So that was really exciting to see. And they're only working with farming tools with their bare hands. So they don't have any, um, mechanized or power tools. Um, so that's what we're looking at um, supporting them with. That's really their next greatest need. Um, basically, they need a compressor, which serves two mine, uh, two purposes at a mine. Uh, first, to bring oxygen to uh, the end where they're working, which isn't a, a huge problem yet, but it will be at the rate that they're working. Um, and also, a compressor allows you to use power tools. So they need to have a drill, 
um, so the, the jackhammer so that they can uh, move a lot more dirt than they're moving. They could do in a day really what they're doing in a week right now, um, and it would make uh, effective use of the miner's time if they were doing that. And the, um, the indicator minerals that I saw were, I mean, they're just screaming at you along the walls of the mine, uh, especially compared to some of the other uh, mines that I went to the end of where I was kind of like, okay, I think I see what you're following, but I'm not really sure that I know that you're following anything. It was really exciting in this one because they're being very calculated um, to make best use of their time and of, of their efforts. Um, and uh, she's a really inspiring woman. So she has three young kids and um, she works with several other widows and they just support each other in every part of life. They share who's taking care of the kids and share the cooking and um, make sure somebody's always at the mine. Uh, and they're really excited. Like, they're passionate. This is what they want to do. Um, and they really believe in the power of gemstones to change their lives. Wow. That, I, I love that. And it's really exciting to know that eventually some of the gems that will be on your website will have come from their mind and that, um, that people can support them by, you know, purchasing the gemstones and having their jewelers set them. That's just exactly. magnificent. It's so exciting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the, the, full circle and one gemstone where you really get to know the whole story and exactly what impact it had on them. Yes, absolutely. So Brenda, when I started in the gem trade over 35 years ago, you know, I wasn't thinking, Oh gee, you know, what kind of impact can I have today? That what, you know, as a young man, I wasn't like thinking like that, but at some point in time along the way, it really just struck me that if, if I'm going to be working in the gem trade, um, I kind of do want to leave a legacy. And so it's probably no coincidence that, you know, our philanthropy partner uh, is named Gem Legacy. So it's, it's kind of cute and it's a great name and it really portrays what we're doing. It really does. Um, and it's wonderful that you found that path, Roger, and you're just going to be inspiring so many other people in the trade. And I hope that this podcast will bring to light for people listening that there's so much more behind a pretty gemstone in a ring. You know, there, there are families, there are people, there are hard workers, there are stories like the woman, Esther, you just told me about whose husband passed away a couple of years ago, and now she has to support, you know, her family and she's passing that on. It's, it's just wonderful what you all are doing. Thank you. Well, we've yeah. I've had a lot of partners along the way, and, um, yeah, it comes from the, the passion inside. Oh, good. Okay, so I saw um, that people can sign up to go on trips with you all. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I've, I've had uh, close to 200 people travel with me at some point in time in the last 10 years. And our focus really at this point in time, our focus is to have uh, retail jewelers travel with us so they can experience what the mines are like and to experience what it takes for a gem to land in their store. Uh, it's, the trips really aren't built for consumers at, that, at this point in time. It's really built around retail store owners and maybe even their employees to potentially take a trip and have the experience that we've been having for the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how do people go about um, signing up for that and, you know, anything that they would need to, to know to, to pursue that? And when, when is the next one that you're going on? Uh, next summer we have a trip. Uh, plan, but that trip actually is already full. Um, mm -hmm. We have a bit of a waiting list, but I think people can write to us, and uh, if they happen to be in a retail store location, uh, we can entertain some conversation about how how to go about it. Uh, if they're consumers, um, I don't know if there's anyone actually uh, doing trips where a consumer could actually do this sort of thing. It's it's really geared for the jewelry trade. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Right. And that, that's good. That way you keep it in the same, you know, keep it in the same avenue so that it, it starts, starts in the mines and then it goes directly to the store. So then you're leading yes, um, exactly. it in, in the right path. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you'd like to share with me about your gem legacy and your experiences? Well, the back up to something we talked about earlier about the holistic sourcing, you know, 
uh, I'm sure there's a lot of gem uh, people in the gem trade that come and go in Africa buying goods and taking them back. Um, but I really want to just encourage people if 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 you're one of those people that are making the trip and you're uh, you're going there to buy goods, just to look at ways that you can contribute back to the to the miners and the people that are physically doing the work. Look for opportunities to contribute because uh, it isn't like they often have that opportunity themselves. So to, to look out for someone that isn't doesn't even know to look out for themselves is really a gift. Hmm. And I think just to um, go off of that, certainly that's if you're in the trade, but if you're not in the trade, um, we get the choice. Um, to buy our luxury items, I guess we'll call them, where, where we want to. Um, and just like anything else, we get the choice to make sure that it's, um, it's giving back and it's um, taking care of the people who brought us that beautiful item. Um, and the, the people we interact with in East Africa don't really want charity, um, which is why we're really trying to use Gem Legacy in a careful manner so that we're we're supporting things that are also a charity there, for example, schools or orphanages. But um, the mines themselves, um, they have the people have dignity just like us, and so um, they want to build a business relationship with us. So for us to come back and say that um, we met this wonderful lady and um, she just fell in love with your gemstone and I wanted to tell you about her and I got to tell her about you, and uh, your gemstone's living with her now. It's in a beautiful piece of jewelry. And she's telling people every time they ask about her ring, uh, where it came from, and that you mined it. And so that beautiful story really does travel all the way around the world. Um, and the miles between the mine and the market suddenly become much shorter. And um, the, the part of discovering the gemstone kind of stays with it all the way to wherever its final destination is. Oh, that is so special. I I love that image of being able to see both people, you know, their their whole face light up and know, you know, the person wearing it, where it started from, and the person who found it, that it's being worn by someone and enjoyed. Well, thank you so much for taking time from your day. I know you're I don't know. How long does it take you to recover from a trip? Depends. Some trips we come back and two days later we think, wow, what did we do right on this flight? We're doing well. And um, this trip we have been just struggling to get over the jet lag. <laughs> it's, it's part of what we do. And we, we kind of acclimate ourselves to this. And this, You know, I mentioned earlier this is my 35th trip to Africa. Plus we tra- traveled to Sri Lanka as well and also Southeast Asia. So we uh, you kind of develop a system for long-distance travel so that you're not totally overwhelmed when you get back. So we find a way to fight through all the jet lag and all that that entails. Well, it's been a real pleasure, and I don't want to take any more of your time, Roger, but I will do whatever I can to tell people about you and tell the story. And I'm really excited to see Gem Legacy and your gemstone business continue to grow. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to be part of a podcast and uh, appreciate all the questions and and the interest. appreciate you sharing the story. Yeah, we do. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you both.